Parsha from this past spot was Lech Lecha. Did everybody read the Parsha? Yes. Good. So, we're going to have a little test on the Parsha to see how you did, and we're going to discuss the question. And I expect response. I expect participation in this little exercise here. Okay? What benefits did God promise Abraham if he would leave his home? This is found in the 12th chapter, the first verse. So let's just look at that. What does it say? He will be a great nation. Great nation. That's right. And notice when you look down into the next couple of verses. Actually, go to verse 3. It said, I wish to bless those who bless you. Whoever brings a curse upon you, I will curse. And all the earth will be blessed through you. No, go to verse 2. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. And I wish to make your name great, you become a blessing. So this is a very interesting thought, that Abraham is to become a blessing. And it's not he will be blessed, or he will bless, he will be the blessing. And what does that mean? Blessing is like a, is like a pool in which all of the energy from heaven comes down and it collects. This is this is being a blessing. So that the, the energy from heaven, the blessing from heaven comes down into this person and then this person will then give that out into the world. And that's what it means when a person himself becomes a blessing. It's kind of interesting when you think about it in those terms. The second question. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And considering what I just said, now look at verse 3. And what do you think that's talking about? When it says all the families of the earth will be blessed through you.
all peoples will be blessed. Right. Well, think about that, too. From what we just talked about, that this person is a receptacle of blessing for all the people of the earth. And so the children, of the, his children, the people who became the, the nation of the covenant, had this, have, present tense, the same thing. That this is a nation of blessing, a receptacle of the blessing of Hashem in the world for all people of the earth. So when you stop and you think about that, his descendants will be blessed, but also that his descendants will be blessing. And you think about that. I mean, think. When we actually rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, it is not just for the Jewish people. It's for all people of the world, right? So that all people of the earth will be able to Exactly. Know Hashem through you, and they will be blessed through the Jewish people. Because the Jewish people, like Abraham Avinu, are supposed to be blessing. Not just be blessed, but be blessing for all of the world. It's, this is the way, and this is why we have to realize the ways of Hashem. That he does not just give a blessing to a person for him to have it for himself. Like, Avraham was not made wealthy for Avraham's sake. He was made wealthy. He was blessed. He was, But he was supposed to be the channel through which this blessing would flow into the world. And that's why it took this incredible man. It took 20 generations for him to be born. There was 10 generations to Noah. And then from Noah, it was 10 generations later was Abraham. And so it took this 20 generations from Adam for this uh, reincarnation of Adam to come into the world and to start fixing things that he would be able to actually be this channel through which Hashem could bless the world. That was the plan from the beginning. So it's really interesting when we look at it in those terms. Now, the third question, who were the souls that Abraham and Sarah made? And this is in the fifth verse of the twelfth chapter. disciples they brought to Torah. Yes. So where they were, you see that the souls that they made went with them when they went to the land of Canaan. And so these were the people that they brought to the Torah. And what was the Torah at that time? What was the only Torah that people understood, that people had revealed to them at that time? What do you think? This is before Sinai. So what do you think that was? The Noahide Law. Absolutely. And the Noahide Laws, I agree with you, Russell, that there was, it was all oral. There was nothing written down. And so I'm sure, because we have the, in the oral tradition, we have this idea of the, of the academy of Shem and Aver, and what were they teaching? 
they had to be teaching the Noahide laws, and it was all oral. But there is an opinion that I've heard bandied around that there must have been a lot, a lot of in-depth commentary on these laws because people would sit and learn for years. We have a midrash that says that Yaakov sat in the academy of Shimon Eber for 14 years. So what was he learning for 14 years? Couldn't have been learning seven simple points. So from that we can see that there was a lot to learn. And Avraham, every time he would camp someplace, would pitch a tent, so did Yitzhak, specifically for people to learn Torah. That he was constantly drawing people to learn Torah. Okay. What were the Canaanites doing in the land of Canaan when Avraham arrived? And this is found in the sixth verse. And you kind of have to, to stretch your mind a little bit to see it from the from the Peshat. And so I'm going to just tell you. Now the land of Canaan was not, all the land, all of the world was divided up and given to the different nations. After you have Parshat Noah with the 70 names there. And each nation was given its own land. The land of Canaan, the land of Israel, Eretz Israel, was never assigned to the Canaanites. They conquered the land. They had this great leader, Nimrod, and they conquered the land. And later on we're going to see that the five kings make war on the four or the four kings make war on the five kings. So you can see this this happening as they're making war on each other. They're coming from the east to conquer land. Why did Avraham build an altar at Ai? Or Ai, you might have thought of it. And that's found in the 8th verse of the 12th chapter. He built an altar in the 8th verse. And just this is from the oral tradition. He gave orders to move on from there toward the mountains to the east of Betel. And he pitched his tent there, having Betel on the west and I on the east, then he built an altar to God and proclaimed it in the, the name of God. Now, this is actually in the oral tradition, the answer, that Avraham foresaw that the Jewish people would be... Are you going to give me a, uh, an answer, Russell? To pray and thanksgiving. That's usually the reason that there would be altars built. But why specifically there? What do we know about I? Just kind of think about that a minute. Yes. And we're going to see that later. But what, the, what this was, was Avraham was a prophet. Now remember, Avraham was a prophet. 
Cornerstone Inn claiming the land. Now, what happened at Ai? Remember after the Battle of Jericho, when Ethan stole the, the wealth from Jericho and he hid it, and then the next battle was where? The next battle that they lost, remember? And so he foresaw that they would be defeated there in the days of Yahushua due to Achim's sin. So he built an altar there to pray for them. Now it's very interesting how we look at this and sometimes when we see these stories in the Torah from the Midrash, we go, oh, well, yeah, you're stretching it. But I have a story for you. And I heard this story a few years ago in Yiddish. But it was interesting how I understood exactly what was being said. So I was very excited about that. But anyway, the story goes like this. One day, Balsham Tov was traveling through the area of Poland. And he got this terrible, terrible foreboding feeling in this one place in Poland. He thought, oh, what is this? So he called a minion of men together to pray and pray and pray in this one place. And that place is known today as Auschwitz. And some people would hear that story. And they would say, well then, sounds like his prayer didn't, it, it didn't succeed. But yeah, think about it. Just like this story of Abraham praying at Ai, the people of Israel lost that battle, but what could have happened? What could have happened is that they could have been utterly defeated. There could have been the judgment against the Jewish people to the point that they could never have recovered, just like at Auschwitz. And so even though, yeah, there was going to be this tragedy and there was going to be this battle, and the people are going to lose the battle. Even so, it's not going to be utter destruction. There's going to be a mitigation of that judgment. And this, when I heard that story, I realized that this was something very, very holy. That the judgment was so harsh who knows what it was, but it was so harsh, and he prayed, and it was mitigated, just like Abraham prayed, and I, and yeah, they lost the battle, and people were killed, but they were not utterly defeated, and then they were able to find the sin, find out the sin, and deal with that, and then come back and defeat the, the city of I. So there was mitigation of the judgment. It's a really important concept for us to grab hold of and it's really interesting when we can see it in the Torah through the oral law and then we can hear it in a story of one of our more modern sages that we can mesh up. And it tells us a lot about prayer and a lot about the power of prayer and a lot about hoping and it also tells us a lot about the expectation 
that we have of how the prayers are going to be answered. Sometimes the prayer isn't going to be answered in the same way as we would think. But yet, it's still sweetened. The judgment is still sweetened for us to where it's not going to be something we can't recover from. You see the difference? And so this is what Abraham was doing when he built this altar at Ai. Please forgive my interruption, but I just learned my cousin's family who live near San Diego are evacuating due to the fires. Oh my goodness, my kids live there. I would ask that you include them in your prayers. Who? My kids live there. Where exactly in the San Diego area do they live, Debbie? Do you, do you know that? Chula Vista. Oh, wow. Wow. It just seems like you get this in California. You get the, the fires, and then you get the rains, and you have the mudslides. It's really something, yeah. So, yes, we have to remember that in prayer. Because prayer does make a difference, and this is an example of exactly that. And, yeah, it's a town of 36,000 people today. That's where the synagogue is that my daughter Amira, where she teaches Hebrew. <coughs> okay, so let's go on. What two results did Abraham hope to achieve by saying that Sarah was his sister? Gail and Catherine, we are going through the Parsha with these questions to just lay a foundation here. Got it exactly right, Debbie. That he wouldn't be killed and that he would get presents. You're exactly right. Now, this kind of makes Abraham look a little bit superficial, and we know that's not true. So we have to be careful when we read this that we don't start thinking, God forbid, that Abraham was in any way superficial here he understood that the Egyptians were very corrupt people he understood that Sarah was an exceptionally beautiful woman and remember she was 70 actually yes we're told that he did think of the presence that he would be he would be rewarded you know that he would be well let's look at the verse it's the 13th verse of the 12th chapter. So it says, Therefore, please say that you are my sister, in order for them to get to you through me, it may be, go well with me, and I will remain alive because of you. So this is an allusion to the presence that it would go well with them. But it's a very interesting 
The whole story of Sarah and Abraham going to Egypt is a very interesting story in that um, it was divine. Did he lie in saying that she was his sister? Uh, actually, yes. But in a way, no, because she was his niece. And so a close relative was also considered, was also called sister. So it wasn't a blatant, bald-faced lie. And he was very concerned about her well-being. So he, he told her to also say that she was married and that he was looking over her because he didn't want them to take her. So he had her start calling him my brother before they even arrived in Egypt so that she wouldn't slip and say, my husband. And um, and then the he hid her in a box. This is the Midrash. He hid her in a box and he got to the border where they were going to charge a, a tax for him to go into the country. And they realized this box is awfully heavy. What is in this box? And so he said, I'll pay whatever whatever tariff you want, whatever tax you want, I'll pay for it. He said, well, what if it's gold? He said, I'll pay the tax for gold. And they said, but what if it's precious jewel? He said, I'll pay for diamonds, anything. And then they started getting really suspicious because he was too eager to pay them. So they said, well, what if it's something dangerous? We have to look inside. So they insisted. They looked inside, and there was Sarah, who was the most beautiful woman they had ever seen. And interestingly, that she's 70 years old at the time. I mean, think about it. This is amazing. So they, they argued over which one was going to get her. And they were offering him huge amounts of money, because he's a brother, right? So they offered him huge amounts of money for the privilege of having this beautiful woman. And then they finally decide that they're going to go to the Pharaoh to solve this. And this beautiful woman must be worthy of a king. So Pharaoh took her into his house. And it's a whole story. The angel came to protect Sarah and afflicted the Pharaoh with a skin disease, a horrible, painful skin disease, so he wouldn't touch her. And every time he would come near her, the angel would whack him. And Sarah would say, hit him, hit him. So he would whack him. And Sarah told him, I'm a married woman. You can't come to me. I'm a married woman. But he was still. And finally, it was revealed to Pharaoh that she was actually married to Abraham. Right? And so, then he was very furious that Abraham had not, I mean, sure, he understood that the Egyptians were all corrupt, but after all, he was the Pharaoh. He could have confided in him. And he, so he was very angry at Abraham. He could have told me, at least. But he still, he was afraid. After all of this, the angel hitting him and him having the skin disease and all of the people, all of the uh, people in his household suffering because of this, that he gave Abraham presents and told him, please, take your wife and get out of our country. 
so that whole story is a very interesting story. And we're going to uh, see this at the very end. There is a question. When Hagar comes up, who was Hagar's father? What did, what did, um, who was Hagar's father? She was an Egyptian, remember? Pharaoh, exactly. And so why, how in the world would she have become a servant in the house of Abraham and Sarah? A servant to Sarah. And it goes like this. Pharaoh said to his daughter, this righteous woman, Sarah, this beautiful, beautiful, righteous woman, Sarah, he had this respect for her. After everything that happened, he had this respect for her. He said, it would be better for you to be a servant of Sarah than to be a princess in my, in my house. And of course, the Pharaohs always had numerous, numerous, numerous children. But Hagar, being the daughter of Pharaoh, could have become a queen of the country. She could have married a, a king. But instead of becoming a queen in the secular world, she became a servant of Sarah. So it's interesting when we look at that, we see that connection. And we see something very special about Hagar. A lot of times we want to overlook Hagar because she was this maidservant, like she was a nobody. She was not a nobody. She was a princess. She was a very worthy woman. And so when we get down to the idea of Sarah giving Hagar to Avraham, remember that. Remember, she was an extraordinary, extraordinarily worthy woman to become the concubine. And then later, she becomes the wife of Avraham. She becomes the wife of Avraham, remember this, with a new name after Sarah's death. Later in the story, yes, she goes by the name Keturah. And this is after she's sent away and, and Sarah has died. She's sent away to uh, Beersheba. She's into the south of Israel. And then it's interesting because we're told that Yitzhak goes there. And what does he do? What's he doing going there? He is bringing her to his father. This is such a sweet story because you see this, you have this feeling of, of um, conflict that you would think that would be the last thing that Yitzhak would do. But yet, you see there that there wasn't this animosity in the family like you would assume. And it's Yitzhak himself who goes down and he gets Hagar and he brings her to his father. And she's known then as Keturah. I, I, I love that story because it's, it's so extraordinary. Why did Avraham's shepherds rebuke Lot? Lot, in Hebrew, it's Lot, Lot's shepherds, and that is found in the thirteenth chapter, the seventh verse.
Walking the pastures of water. <laughs> well, that's kind of it. <laughs> I love your choice of words here, Teddy. <laughs> They were grazing on land that didn't belong to them. And that's true. That's it. Now what was the reason that they said that they were they they should it didn't matter. Because they knew that Hashem had promised the whole of the land to Abraham. And so Abraham didn't have any children. And they're arguing, Well, our master Lot is going to be the heir of Abraham anyway. And so there, it will belong to him anyway. So, there are two things that we see in here. One thing is that they're grazing the land that didn't belong to them because it was still the land that belonged to the Canaanites. Abraham hadn't taken possession of this land. But even if he had, even if it was Abraham's land, then what is Lot doing? He's stealing from Abraham. Because Abraham is still alive, he can't say I'm taking my inheritance now you can't do that and so regardless they were stealing and Abraham was not wanting to get involved in this squabble so he says to them says to Lot to go that they must separate now who was Amraphel and why was he called that? That is found in 14th chapter, verse 1. Now, this is also from Oral. And so you're going to not really be able to get it, I don't think. Oh, maybe you can. There's a hint here. The days of Amraphel king of Shinar. So who would he have been? Think about it. Nimrod. You're exactly right. Nimrod. He saw Amar to Avraham. He, no, I'm sorry. He said Amar to Avraham to fall or sell into the fiery furnace. So he is called Amraphel. Amar, like Amra, fell. Okay. On the seventh verse of that same chapter, the next question is, verse 14.7 states that the four kings smote all the country of the Amalekites. How is it possible since Amalek had not yet been born? That's in the seventh verse of the same chapter. Now this is also something that will it's kind of obvious. He hadn't been born yet, but the Torah uses the name that the place would bear in the future. So it's just letting you know this is the area where Amalek would be. 
In the next, the next question is the answer is found in the thirteen. It's about fourteen, verse thirteen. Why did the Palit tell Abraham of Lot's capture, and who was that? The Palit, the one who told Abraham, went to tell Abraham. This is in the oral. You might not know. Just let me. I want to see if you know. Who told Abraham that Lot had been captured? Yeah. It was Og, the giant Og, who became the king of Bashan. And the reason he told Abraham was because he wanted him to go to battle and be killed so that he could marry Sarah. Alright. Who accompanied Avraham in battle against the four kings? And that is in the 14th verse of the same chapter. And it's illusion. It's an illusion here. Who, who was it that accompanied Avraham in the battle against the four kings? It says, When Avraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth all those who had been born in his household and educated by him. 318 and pursued the captors as far as Dan. So who was, who was this? There are two, there are a couple of opinions about this. You got that right, Russell. Yes, the gematria of Eliezer's name is 318. And that's how we know the allusion is to him that he was the same as 318 men going to battle with Avraham. It's just amazing. It was a, it was a miracle. And Eliezer is a really interesting person, too. He was also a Canaanite. And so, being a Canaanite, he was, he was a member of a nation that had been cursed. But Canaan was cursed by Noah. And so, Eliezer is a member of this nation. But yet, he is like this jewel, this spark in the, in the rough here. And Abraham picked him up. And we're told that Eliezer, a lot of very interesting things in the oral Torah about Eliezer, that he became one of the seven people that entered Gan, uh, that entered Gan Eden alive. And he never died. And the reason was because when he went to get Rivka, to get Rebecca for Yitzhak. Yitzhak had the thought that maybe something happened between him and Rivka. And because he just had the thought, 
Hashem gave, because Eliezer was this very righteous man, gave him the merit of entering Gan Eden alive. And we're also told that he is the one who stands guard at Machpelah over Abraham and Sarah. That's very interesting. Why couldn't Avraham chase the four kings past Dan? Now this is going to be a territory where Dan is going to, just like the, the question about Amalek, this is the territory where Dan will be. So why, when he was chasing the four kings, why could he not chase them past the territory of Dan? Now it says he pursued the captors as far as Dan. So this is going to be kind of a tricky question, but think about it. Think about Dan into the future. What happened there? <clears throat> when you're reading Torah, you can kind of see these allusions, even in the Peshat, and you'll see allusions to something in the future. golden calf would be set up there. That is exactly right. Exactly. And because he saw that, and his strength failed him when he saw that, because he thought, oh, my children will be idolaters? Then he saw there must be something amiss in himself. Remember, who was his father? Sarah, the idol maker. And so he was just shocked when he realized prophetically that this golden calf would be set up there. And his strength failed him. Now we're going to the 20th verse. Why did Abraham give Maaser specifically to Malkitzedek? Now Maaser is from the word in Hebrew, Esther, which means ten. And so what we're, do, what we're looking at here is it is a tithe. Maaser means tithe. So why did he specifically... Give it to Malkitzedek. Malkitzedek means Zedek is righteous and Malke, Malkitzedek, Malke is king. So it was the righteous king. It wasn't a name, it was a title. So who was Malkitzedek? He was the king of Salem, which would become Yerushalayim. Yeah, and he was Shem, that's right, it was Shem. And he was called the priest of the Most High God, which is in Hebrew, El Elyon. And so because he was the only Kohen of the time, this was the reason he was the only Kohen, the only priest of Shem. This was the reason that it was to him that Abraham gave his tithes.
Why didn't Abraham accept any money from Sodom's king? I've given us a foretelling of law to give you a tithe. Right. Why did not Abraham not accept any money from Sodom's king? I don't think so. I don't think that's quite yet. Avraham, we're talking about Avraham. He did not want to accept anything from Saddam's king. He didn't want any question that his riches were a result of exactly. He did not want the king of Saddam saying, I made Avraham wealthy. Yeah, and you could say it that way too, that it was defiled because their Saddam was so corrupt. They, they, they formed corruption into law. It was horrible. If you've read any of the oral tradition about Sodom, it was the most corrupt place that you could even imagine. Okay. When did the decree of 400 years of exile begin? Now we're going. To, we're going now to. The 15th chapter, the 13th verse. So we have that Abraham has received these blessings from Hashem. And there is the, the covenant between the pieces. Right. At Isaac's birth. Exactly. Boy, Vivi. You know about all this. Exactly. That's great. What did God indicate with his promise that Abraham would come to his ancestors in peace? And you'll find that in the 15th verse of that same chapter. But you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. What was he indicating by that? Okay, what he's indicating here is that his father, Terah, would repent and become righteous in his old age. Remember, Abraham left his father in Haran before his father died. His father didn't die for years after Abraham left. But his father did repent, Ishmael repented, and became righteous at the very end of their lives. So this is what is alluded to by, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Otherwise, how could he go to his fathers in peace? It is terror. In the end, there would be, not be conflict in his family. That when he would go to his fathers, that they had come to peace themselves. Actually, let's go back here again.
Now here in the in the eleventh chapter, in the twenty seventh verse, where it says, These are the descendants of Terah. Terah begot Avram. Now when you ever whenever you see a name mentioned twice, and you can see an example of this in the very first part of Harshad Noah. It says there was a righteous these are the products of Noah. Noah. So it's Noah, Noah. And here in this verse, the 27th verse of the 11th chapter, you see Terah, Terah. So when you see the name mentioned twice, like Avraham, Avraham, Terah, Terah, Noah, Noah, you know that this is a righteous person. So at the end of his life, while he's an idol maker, of course, he's not righteous. But at the end of his life, he's going to die a righteous man. And so you have a hint there. And then you have a hint here where it says Abraham will go to his fathers in peace. That Terah, his father, does do tshuva and he becomes a righteous man. How did God fulfill his promise that Abraham would be buried in a good old age. Now this is found in the 15th verse there where he's saying that he would go in peace to his fathers and he would die at a good old age. Now think about that. What kind of death is this going to be? And it's a hint from what you're saying here, Debbie, that there would be no conflict in the family. That's a hint. He lived until his family was rejoined. Okay. Now, I kind of mentioned it before when I was talking about Terah. Peaceful, yeah. What this means is that Avraham, oh, let me see what Alan and Eileen are going to write here before I say it. So if the father is going to die in peace, what does he want to see? What is he what is he going to want to see? The two boys came back together. And actually you're right. Itzak and Ishmael buried Abraham together. You're absolutely right about that. But first, before that happened, Abraham lived to see Ishmael repent and actually become righteous. And he died before his grandson Asaph became wicked. Now we have a story of Yaakov making this lentil soup. And lentils is it's a food that is eaten by mourners because it's round, indicating the circle of life. It's a food that's indicated that's eaten by mourners. And so the Yaakov and Ish and Asaph at that time were fifteen years old. And so we're told by the sages that this is the time when Abraham had passed away, had died. And Asaph came from the field 
and he said, give me some of that red stuff, I'm starving and I'm going to die. You know, he was so hungry. What had he done? What he had done out in the field was he had killed Nimrod, and he had taken his cloak, this is from the oral flora, that he had taken the, the garment of Adam that Nimrod had had, and this is how Esau came to, to own it. And so he um, was coming from the fields from having killed Nimrod. Now this is not in the in the Peshat. This is in the oral Torah. Okay. Why did the Jewish people need to wait until the fourth generation until they returned to Eretz Canaan? Now remember when it says 400 years the fourth generation, or when Abraham was given this promise, we find this in chapter 15, verse 16, and it's straight here. The 16th verse in the 15th chapter. It's straight here. You can just read the verse and you can see the answer. And that's the reason I'm not going to tell you the answer, because you can read the verse and you can see the answer. That's 15, verse 16. And this tells us something about how the court of heaven works with judgment. The iniquity of the Amorite shall not yet be full until then. And that is exactly correct. Because the court of heaven was giving them the opportunity to repent before judgment would fall on them. And that's how it works. Hashem does not pass judgment or the punishment of the judgment until people have sufficient time for repentance. And that applied also to the Amorites. So he waited until the fourth generation for the people of Israel to come because the people of Israel were going to be the axe in God's hand. Okay. A very last question. Why did Abraham fall on his face when God appeared to him? And that found that he fell on his face is found in the 17th chapter in the 3rd and Avram fell on his face and God talked with him so that he might communicate it now this is something that maybe you don't know about I mean this is not something right straight from the written Torah so I'm going to tell you the reason was because he was not yet circumcised this is the reason that when we read Harshit Balak that Bilam when he would hear from Hashem, 
he would fall down because he was not circumcised proper. And he would hear from Hashem, but he couldn't stand the presence of the Shekhinah, and it would cause him to fall down. And so the sages tell us that once, when they were, once they were circumcised, then they entered the breach, then they were, the uh, prophets were able to stand in the presence of Hashem. So, that is a little test, and the reason I wanted to go through those questions was to kind of lay a groundwork, the foundation of learning Torah. And it's so important for us to have a good, solid foundation of learning Torah before we start learning the more esoteric, the mysteries, and all that. We first have to have a good, solid foundation in the actual shot written Torah. So tomorrow night we're going to go into the Parsha and go into some more, some of the more mysterious parts of it, the codes, the secrets that are within the Parsha. It's going to be healing in the Parsha. Are there any questions before we go? Before we end the class? Yeah, this is a good way to learn. I this is what Yol is doing a couple of nights with the different classes, and um, it is a good way to learn with these kind of questions. Judgment is delayed until sufficient time has passed to repent. Does each soul have the 400 years that are mentioned here? No, it's different for every soul, and we have to remember that this 400 years was a period of judgment on the Amorites. I was specifically for them. Now you have, when you, you can really get a picture of the courts of heaven and how that works if you read the book of Daniel. That each one of those exiles was a certain number of years. And when People were in the exile from Babylon, from Babel, and then into Persia. The, the number of years was going to be 70 years. A specific number of years for a reason. Every single time there is a judgment, there's a, there's a number of years that is given for that judgment. There's a specific reason for that period of time. Whether we understand it or not, there's a specific reason. Now, Think about it. I mean, when the people of Israel went down into Egypt, the count started at the birth of Isaac, like we were talking about. But their actual slavery did not start until Levi, the last of the brothers, had passed away. And this was even a few years before the really harsh judgment started. The really harsh, I mean not judgment, the really harsh slavery, the oppression, started with the birth of Miriam. And it's alluded to in that verse where it says, and the paro made their lives bitter. And so the actual very, very bitter part of the slavery 
was 86 years long. It wasn't 400 years, thank God. It was 86 years. And then we see another stage. When you read the first chapter of Exodus, you can see like the same thing, the stages of the Holocaust. And then you can see the death camp, so to speak, where it was the death of the, first, of the, of the babies, of the baby boys, started with the birth of, of uh, Moshe. And so that lasted, for all intents and purposes, that would have been 80 years before the Exodus. That was 80 years before the Exodus because Moshe was 80 years old when the people of Israel came out of Egypt. And so, well, I'm glad to see you here, Dina, but our class started an hour ago. So it's over now. I'm sorry. So tomorrow night, though, remember that the class starts at 7 o'clock Central Time. We're going to have healing in the Parsha. 7 o'clock Central Time. Almost all of you are Central Time except Alan and Eileen. And it's 6 o'clock Mountain Time where I am. With the snow on the mountains, it starts at 6 o'clock. So thank you for being here. I'm looking forward to seeing everybody tomorrow night at 6 o'clock Mountain Time, 7 o'clock Central Time, and we're going to go into more depth into the Parsha.